in 1 Chronicles and in 2 Samuel, we find the account of King David counting the Israelites. In other words, the king had ordered a census to be taken. Well, God didn't like this very well. Made God angry. And so we're going to pick the story up in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse number 14. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. And as he was destroying, the Lord said to the angel, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord, having in his hand a sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now we're going to pick up the rest of this story a little bit later in the message. But it seems to me, <clears throat> it seems to me that, that in today's church we have a segment of believers who... Well, frankly, they really don't understand salvation. It's like we skipped kindergarten and elementary school and we have people who are, who are attending college. We try to build a third floor before we have ever built the foundation. In other words, people understand and want the promises of God, but without having a relationship with the promiser. So it almost becomes like a con game, a Santa, a Santa Claus mentality. It's a give me, give me, give me proposition without digging down into the fundamental truths of being delivered by the power of God and coming to understand who you are in Him. Now we need to understand that when we give our heart to Jesus, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God, the spirit of the creator of the universe comes and lives within us. Now, in King James vernacular, I'm not talking about LeBron. In King James vernacular, that was much funnier than the laugh I got. Is it going to be that way today? You know, I've been gone a little while, so you're getting lazy, yawning, and things like that. You know, the more you help me preach, the shorter it is. There you go. In the King James vernacular, the Bible says, He quickened. The word is quickened you who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so our innermost being becomes alive. 
It is illuminated and propelled by the power of God. Now, nothing changes on the outside of me. I don't grow more hair once I say the sinner's prayer. Bummer, right? Yeah, that's what Travis said. Me too. But nothing changes on the outside of me, just within me. In your case, if you had a bunion on your left toe before you got saved, afterwards when you took your sock off, there's a good chance that bunion was still there. Because the real truth of the matter is salvation did not change your flesh. It quickened your spirit, your innermost being. And God resurrected the part of you that had been dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in sin, we were then made alive together with Christ. That, my friend, is what salvation is. By the grace of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, it is the quickening of the Spirit in us. That's what salvation is. And so when God's Word got down and it quickened your spirit, and it saved your soul at that instant. But eventually, the Word of God began to save your mind, your emotions, your memories. It began to save your traumas and, and even your temper. Now, I realize some of you are still working on that one. Don't say amen, Starla. No, not hallelujah either. Just, just, just keep it down. But you see, my point is this. Some things happen faster than others. Romans 12, 2 says that we are transformed. Like the caterpillar turns into the butterfly, the tadpole into the frog, the frog into the prince. We are transformed. It's a progressive regeneration by the renewing of our mind. And so as you consume God's word, it begins to change you. It begins to heal you. It begins to stitch back the broken pieces in your life. Because let's face it, folks. Every single one of us in this room are victims of circumstances. We are victims of the trials and tribulations and the traumas of this life. And so even after we get saved, we still carry a lot of baggage, a lot of wounds, a lot of scars. You can be saved in your spirit, but still be troubled in your mind. You can be saved in your spirit, but still be frustrated by your memories and plagued by your past. I don't know if a bug flew in my mouth or what, but... It did taste pretty good, yeah, I guess, so maybe it was. But you see, God, our Heavenly Father, who sent His Son Jesus to die for us, He assumes a dubious task of regenerating our mind. And it's a process. And so in spite of our call to greatness, this life has left us traumatized, and so we all have to go through transformation. Let me put it to you this way. This is why it's not good to put people who get saved one day on the deacon board the next. Even if they do pay more tithe than everybody else. Not a good idea. 
Even if they do have more degrees in the thermometer, they still have to go through transformation. Because if we give them the position right now, they're going to run, they're going to want to run the church like a corporation. But this is not AT&T. This is God's business and it cannot be ran man's way. It has to be ran God's way. And so transformation takes time. The preacher can't always just lay hands on you and change your mind. Believe me, I've tried it with Starla. It doesn't work. (laughs) There are some things that we struggle with as we live through this life. And the Bible says that as we walk with God, as we progress with God, we go from glory to glory and from faith to faith. It's not going to be a microwave experience. It's not going to be name it and claim it because as people, we struggle with change. Let me speak to someone who's here today. Even with that thing that you're suffering through right now, God is changing you. The adversity that's going on in your life, God is using it as a surgeon's instruments to skillfully cut away those things that are hindering you from being the reflection of his glory and his power. So that brings me to, brings me to our text and, and King David. Well, as you study David, you don't have to study very long until you realize that God certainly had an agenda for David. Even though David was continually, his whole life, battling issues in his own life. Well, and likewise, God knew that he was going to use you before you were ever conceived. You see, but the enemy became cognizant of the fact that God had an agenda for you. And so he sent assassins. He sent saboteurs to try to dismantle God's purpose in your life. Make no mistake. Satan's aim is to maim you and leave you so affected and incapacitated that even though you are quickened in your spirit, which the devil cannot spoil, the devil wants to hinder your mind from being renewed. So even though David was Jesse's eighth son, the anointing knew who David was. Samuel the prophet almost chose the wrong man to be king over Israel. But the anointing cannot be denied. And friend, I want you to realize today that God's anointing knows who you are. God's anointing knows exactly where you're sitting today. And God's blessing knows exactly who you are. And the point is that what God has for you, no devil in hell or person on this earth can take it away from you. God is your protector. And God never sleeps. And God never slumbers. So that means you can get on your beauty rest and actually take a beauty rest because God is in control. Now David, I mean he's a poster child of brokenness. What's interesting about David is he is theologically astute. But he is sociologically fragmented. Bottom line is, David had a problem with relationships. And anytime you have a problem in an area, well, it creates a thirst in that area. 
As people, we want what we don't have, and we don't want what there's an abundance of. It's interesting. We never long for the parent that stayed. We long for the one that left. We always want the job that we don't have. And we're hungry in that area in our life where we feel as if we just have not been satisfied. And so David, I mean, he had it together theologically. But sociology, the guy was a train wreck. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Jesse parades seven brothers in front of Samuel. And notice with me, not one of them says, Daddy, Daddy, did you forget David? Not one of them. I mean, it seems to me that out of seven brothers, would have, one of them should have been aware enough to say, Daddy, 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 David's not here. Do you want me to go and, and get him? I guess you could say it was a family that's connected by blood, but not heart. I mean, Jesse, David's father, should have recognized that he had a son, MIA. But even though Jesse failed to promote him and, and none of his seven brothers acknowledged him, the anointing knew who David was and it would not flow until it found David's head. And so now we have David standing there, not dressed like a king, not educated as a king, but as a stinking, dirty shepherd boy, and yet the anointing was not intimidated. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. You know that you didn't have the skills, but yet God anointed you anyway. Now, when you're qualified and you get the job, you feel that you've earned it. But when you know that you weren't qualified, but yet God raises you up anyway, that's when you say, if it had not been for the Lord who was by my side, I would have been swallowed up. When I think of the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me, when others would not promote me, God remembered me. He blessed me. When men put me down, God raised me up. When they said it was impossible, I have to give God the praise and the thanks because he was my partner. God was my comforter. God is my manager. He is my friend. God is my attorney. And God pleads my case. To God be the glory. You see, the reason such radical worship happened in David's life is because, I mean, face it, David was a misfit. He didn't fit in. He was rejected. He was broken. He was ostracized. But he was a son of God. And so that's why he kept cleaning up theologically because he kept messing up sociologically. He kept running back to God because he kept messing up with people. David had trouble with relationships. And you know, there's some of us here today who worship God because there's no one else that stands by us like God stands by us. 
You know, we can't teach you to worship. Pain teaches you to worship. The church will spend all kinds of money trying to get someone to stand up front and bring you into the presence of the Lord. But you see, the moment they stop, you stop. But you see, friend, when there's pain in your life, you won't care who's leading the worship because pain will cause you to worship. Having no one else to talk to but God makes you worship. Being overlooked by man will make you seek the face of God on your face. And here we find David out in the field talking to his only real friend, singing songs that only God would hear, expressing before God those feelings that he couldn't say to his brothers, to his father, or to his friends. David was left alone. Even though he was surrounded by people, he was still left alone with God. But what's so amazing is God said, I'm going to make that boy a king. No training, no preparation, but I like him. I like the kid because he's, he's after my heart. God said, this kid, he's chasing me, he's courting me, so I'm going to promote him because he is a worshiper. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, there are people who cannot understand where you get your strength. There are people who don't know where your joy comes from. There are people who can't understand why you are so happy, but it's because you keep praising God no matter what you go through. Friend, make no mistake, your next promotion is in your praise. So David, he carries his lunch to his brothers because, I mean, you know how it is. When you, when you want relationship, you're always giving. You're always reaching out. And so he brings lunch to his brothers trying to win their affection. But what do they do? They shoo him away. Say, go back to the field where you belong. You're not one of us. And so again, he's left alone. But you see, then God, with a slingshot and a rock, brings David from obscurity to notoriety. When man turned their back on David, God raised him up. And David's gift makes room for him. David's gift brings him before great men. His gift causes him to be accepted in places where before they had been hostile. And friend, I want you to know, each and every one of you, each and every one of you has been given a gift from Almighty God that was placed in you before you were conceived that will get you into the door where you need to go to do what God has called you to do. So King, Call, King Saul, almost said King Kong. <laughs> I don't think he's in the Bible. I don't know. King Saul says to David, dude, get your stuff. You're moving from sleeping with the sheep to sleeping in the palace. But now this is significant because Saul becomes a surrogate father to David. He becomes what Jesse should have been. And only the men here today can fully appreciate how important it is to win the affirmation of your dad. 
Mama can tell you you did good 150 times. And that's wonderful. But if Daddy doesn't say anything, it leaves the void. And so David has adopted Saul as a father figure. And David begins to play the harp for Saul. Never mind the fact that Saul has demons. David says, it's okay, I can make this work. You see, when you've been broken, you overlook people's failures and flaws because you're so desperate for their affection that you try to work everything out on your own. <laughs> until, until the one who invited him one minute is trying to kill him the next. Have you ever had people turn on you and makes you wonder and you think, excuse me, but didn't you invite me? The one who said, welcome to my ha house, is now throwing the javelin trying to kill David. And David's on the run. You know, it makes me want to say, you know, David, dude, come on, man. You don't have much trouble, luck with relationships, do you? You married Saul's carnal daughter, Michael? I mean, everyone else is talking about what a wonderful guy you are except your own wife. I mean, David brings back the Ark of the Covenant and restores it to Jerusalem. God's very present, and he's so overcome with joy, he's dancing in the street before God, and his wife looks at him and says, you look like a fool out there today. That's tough. I mean, it is sad when you can win the applause of everyone but the very one you need it from. Then David had a beautiful son, Absalom, handsome, had beautiful hair that Travis and I lust after. But Absalom betrayed David and tried to destroy him. And even through that, David still loved him. Another of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his own sister, Tamar. Friend, make no mistake, even when you are chosen by God, there is a price to the anointing. The blessing costs you something. The anointing is never free. I mean, everything David had was in shambles. And all he had was his song. All he had was his dance. All he had was his praise. And I can't speak for anyone else, but I want you to know if it wasn't for a praise, I would have lost my mind. If it wasn't for a praise, I wouldn't be here today. It was a hallelujah that kept me going when all hell was breaking loose in my life. You can laugh if you want to, but a praise was my counselor. A praise is my therapist. A praise is my medication. It calms my nerves. It gives me peace. It is a hallelujah that rocks me to sleep at night. The only close friend David ever had was Jonathan, Saul's son. I don't know, the Bible doesn't say this, but maybe it's because both of them came from distracted fathers. But David and Jonathan were allies in the trenches, in the foxhole of life, the best of friends. But then Jonathan dies. And then David, man, come on. The only woman who ever really loved you like you really needed to be loved was another man's wife. <clears throat> I 
Bathsheba, David's great mistake. There's a price to being blessed. And what God showed David, and what God wants to show us today, is that in spite of everything David went through, every broken relationship, every failure, people coming and going out of his life, God always blessed David. Whether Jesse promoted him or his brothers liked him or Saul changed his mind, whether Amnon disappointed him or Absalom betrayed him, at every stage in David's life, God always blessed him. You see, it's because God wanted him to understand that it is not by might nor by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. God wanted him to understand that people come and people go, but God is still the same yesterday and forever. And God wants you to understand that your blessing is not built on whether someone likes you or someone doesn't like you, if someone helps you or doesn't help you, or if someone is for you or against you. Friend, your blessing is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. You You don't have to look into the face of man to be blessed. I dare you to look into the face of God today. All good things come from the Father of light who does not change. And so God was weaning David from what he craved so much. People. And God wants to wean some of you from craving people. You love the Lord. No doubt you love the Lord, but, but, but you have one idol left. You, you've done a, a, a really good job. You've gotten rid of a lot of bad habits. You, you try to keep your thoughts captive, but, but you have this one idol left. You esteem people too high what they think, how they look, what they post. Friend, God wants to wean you from chasing the herd. He wants to wean you from agonizing after, from longing for, and from compromising your standards to gain the attention and affection of people. Are you more concerned about what people said than what God said? Do we spend more time in Facebook than the book? You see, that's what caused God to become angry when David numbered Israel. I'm trying to bring this to a point in five minutes. (laughs) All of David's life All of David's life, God was teaching him not to rely on people. David supposedly had reached a level of maturity that he should have known, if God is for me, he is more than the world is against me. And so when David called for a census, God got mad. God said, David, you dummy, I chose you to be king. Didn't I bless you when Saul was trying to kill you? Didn't I keep you sane when you had your midlife crisis? I brought you through when your children were going crazy. I've delivered you out of the hands of your enemies so many times. And you mean after all I've done for you, you are still counting people?
David should have had a V8. And see, it's not just that David was counting people, but he had been through too much to still be counting on people. And most of us, most of us here today have been through too much to be counting on people. Hasn't God already shown you that he's on your side no matter what your neighbor does? I mean, now, if you were eight years old, it's okay to be upset if Susie didn't play with you on the playground. But you've come too far to be tied up in childish things. Stop counting on people. Count on God. Stop counting on your paycheck. Count on Jehovah Jireh. Stop counting on your doctor. Count on the great physician. So David numbered Israel. Now, he was too old and mature for that. But you see, the enemy was threatening him. And he started backtracking. You see, when we're under pressure, when pressure comes and starts knocking at the door, we all have the tendency to revert back to our bad habits. That's why when under pressure, the enemy says, relax, have a drink. To someone else, the enemy says, hey, you can cover this up. Just tell a lie. It'll go away. Someone else, hey, you know, you've been working really hard. I know you've been under a lot of pressure. Hey, you know, she looks pretty good. Why don't you go and uh, hook up with her? And tries to get you to take your wedding ring off. Pressure makes us want to resort back to our old ways. Pressure always tries to push us back to what we used to do for relief. Well, see, God became angry. And David knew he was in trouble. And God gave him what my mom used to give me. A choice. Although my mom never used the switch that I picked. I don't know why, but... And God said, what kind of judgment do you want? Well, you see, David was a worshiper, and he knew something about his God. So 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 13, David said, please let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. If you get nothing else out of this sermon today, remember God's mercies are great. Now, God is jealous. There's no way around it. And so God started killing what David was counting on. And if we start worshiping anything, putting it in the place of God, he'll remove it. He is a jealous God. And so God began to take away what David was counting on. And one thing about David is that he knew how to pray. And in verse 17, David says, God, why are you killing these people? It wasn't the people who sinned. It was me. Have mercy on them. God said, I know I messed up. I'm sorry. I'm coming back to you. I understand now, Lord. I'm going to give you a sacrifice. I'm going to commit my ways back to you. Well, see, here's my point. God wants something from you today. 
and he wants something from me today. And it has to be more than coming to church and going home, coming to church and going home, coming to church and going home. Because God has a heavenly expectation for each of you who are here today. There is something that God saved you for and that God has called each one of you to do. And if you'll think about it for a second, you'll realize that some of your friends didn't make it. You can think right now of some of your friends who are out of control. But through all of your tests and all of your trials, God has brought you through for a reason. And that reason is that God is, wants something. God wants something out of your life. God has you here for a purpose. So God is merciful. And the angel of the Lord stayed his hand against Israel. Back to our text. I want to praise God for a stayed hand. I want to praise God for what could have happened, what should have happened, what almost happened to me. When I was down for the count and I thought I wasn't going to make it, God stayed his hand. Well, in verse 21, David goes to Ornan and says, I want to buy your threshing floor so that I can build an altar to God. It's interesting that it was a threshing floor. Because the threshing floor is a place of transition, the place of processing. It's a place where the chaff is separated from the wheat. It is the place that prepares you for productivity. And each and every one of us could find, could benefit from finding the threshing floor. So God can pull the chaff out of our life. And we need to be weaned so that there's nothing left except what he wants in our life. And you see, this is the cost of God's mighty blessing. So in verse 22, David says to Ornan, sell me the place of this threshing floor. I want to build an altar on it to the Lord. I will buy it at full price. Verse 23, but Ornan says, you can have it along with everything you need to support your ministry. King, I give it to you all. Then King David said to Ornan, no, I will pay full price. I am not going to take what's yours for the Lord, that which costs me nothing. David says, I don't want you to bless me. That's what this thing is all about. That's why I got in trouble in the first place, looking to people for my blessing. David says, hey, Ornan, if you save me, then I'm going to have to praise you. But I'm not going to praise anyone but my God. And he says, Lord, I refuse to bring you anything that has not cost me something. Anyone can praise God when things are going good. But the cost of God's blessing is worshiping God when things aren't. And so be careful. Be careful when you covet someone else's blessing. Because you never know the price that they paid for it. Bow your heads with me. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, the Bible says, Satan rose up against Israel and moved David to take a census of Israel. 
Well, you know, in today's church, Satan rises up against us and moves us to only give God convenience. Come quickly, Holy Spirit, or or we're not staying. We've got an appointment. We've got to go. So hurry up and move if you're going to move. Lord, if you don't bless me in a month, I'm going to try something else. Because our life is so much tied to convenience, we want to tie our relationship with God to convenience. But you see, friend, blessings from God don't come from that which cost you nothing. And it all starts when you give your life to the Lord. Jesus gave his life for you, and today he is asking you to give your life to him. I will not give the Lord that which costs me nothing. So the next question is, what are you willing to give God today? If you need to be forgiven of sin, you know there are things in your life that are not pleasing to him, and you need to be forgiven, would you raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Thank you. Today, the Lord has been dealing with you. And you're ready. You're ready to give your heart to Jesus. Would you raise your hand? Any others? God bless you. God bless you. Stand with me if you would. All over this room. Altar workers, elders, would you come and take your place around these sacred benches? Now, if you raised your hand, if you didn't raise your hand, but you need the Lord to do something in your life, these altars are open. Go ahead. Step right on out. The singers are going to create an atmosphere of worship. They're going to begin to minister. If you raised your hand, come on. Come receive what God has today.